staff at Wake Forest. And um, for those of you who have no idea where you are right now, um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a Christian campus ministry here on campus. And um, uh, as we say, it's actually written on the front of your bulletin, if you want to pull this out, um, on the top left corner. It says, our goal in RUF is to be straightforward and real, providing opportunities to learn what the Bible teaches about God, you, and our world. We're here for the campus, for students from any denominational background and students who have no Christian background at all. Whoever you are and whatever your, your story is, RUF is here for you. So what we mean when we say that is that we want this to be a safe place where you can come and ask your questions, what questions you have about God, about Christianity, um, about yourself, about the world, and that this would be a place where um, you can actually hone those questions and make those questions better as together we, um, we sing songs like we've sung and we read the Bible and um, we ask what it might actually have to say for our lives um, today as we actually live them. Um, and um, one quick aside I wanted to say tonight. So uh, I follow this guy on Facebook um, who is a weather forecaster, and he is based out of Richmond, and he's kind of snarky and pretty um, often uh, offensive, uh, but he's not like a weatherman on TV. He's actually a weatherman who does, <clears throat> excuse me, does meteorology for um, trucking companies, so he's looking at like 15 days out, and he forecasted today that we're going to get like 18 inches of snow on Friday, so I'm really excited. about. It. I was very distracted today. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to be the most upset person in this room. So I feel comfortable telling that, y'all that because I really want 18 inches of snow. Um, I bought a sled this week, we, so I'm, I'm ready for 18 inches of snow. Um, and two quick announcements. Um, so it might have been confusing earlier when Mary Augusta was making announcements. There was a slide about Mantreat, Mantreat and she was talking about Confederate flag bikinis. And that juxtaposition might have been confusing. Um, what she was saying is Panama City Beach is a place where one is, um, one will see uh, Confederate flag bikinis because that tends to happen at Panama City Beach. She's talking about summer conference. Mantreat is something else entirely. And that's happening this weekend. Um, and fellas, if you um, have not gotten an email about this and you are interested in joining us, so if there is 18 inches of snow, we're not going to go to the mountains. Um, for a possible th threat of life. You know, we don't want to get stuck in the mountains. So we're going to do something fun here instead. Um, Houston, where are you, Houston? Stand up, Houston. Fellas, if you would like information about Mantreat, go find Houston afterwards, and he'll get you on the email to coordinate what we're doing this weekend together. Um, and the second announcement that I wanted to share with you all is on January 31st, uh, which is Sunday, the last Sunday of this month, at 2 p.m., in Davis Chapel, which is the little chapel next to the big chapel, um, I'm getting installed as the REF campus minister. So what this means is we're going to have a worship service, and I'm gonna actually going to take some vows um, to serve y'all and to serve the campus and to serve God as the pastor here at Wake. So you are all invited. Um, would love to have you there uh, to celebrate with us, to worship with us as um, I make these promises before God and before you um, to serve you while I'm here at Wake. So all of these announcements are in the email. Everything you saw up here will be in the email. Um, if you're not getting the email, uh, you can fill out your name on the piece of paper that's going by, and we'll make sure to get y'all on the list. All right, done with announcements. Um, there is a, or there was a uh, college professor, novelist, public intellectual by the name of David Foster Wallace. 
For those of you who don't know him, um, he died in 2008. He committed suicide in 2008. Um, and he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for his, uh, his novel, um, uh, The Pale King. He wrote another famous novel called Infinite Jest. Um, and he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. Um, and this is what he said in this commencement speech. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, be it um, some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This quote is on your bulletin if you want to follow along. Will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Say that again. Um, it's one part of the quote. He says, In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So, David Foster Wallace was not a professing Christian. And yet, his observation about what it means to be human very much agrees with the claims of the Bible. As humans, um, we are created to worship. And to add to his observation, There's this inextricable link between worship and love, what we worship and what we love. And so tonight, I want us to look at this question. What is the relationship between worship and our love, and what might the Bible have to say um, to this question? So um, our outline for tonight is actually on the bulletin on the back side, if you want to flip it over. Um, And we're going to be answering this question with these three points. First, worship aims our love. Worship shapes our love, and worship transforms our love. So we're going to get at these questions um, by reading Psalm 122 together. It's printed on your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can open up as well. Um, So we're going to read Psalm 122. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, It is absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. This is Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Um, Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the songs that we have sung, and we ask now that you would attend to your word by your spirit, that we might see um, this connection between worship and our loves, and might see you, our great God, um, the center of our worship and the the end of our love. Um, We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this semester, um, we are going to be reading the Songs of Ascents together or at least a portion of these psalms. And this is Psalm 120 through 134. So within the psalms, there are 150 psalms, there's this smaller connection, the smaller collection, sorry, Psalms 120 through 134. And they're called the Songs of Ascents. And the title of the psalms, if you looked in the Bible, they would all say that, a song of ascent, a song of ascent. And what this is, is these um, were songs that Israel sang together as they traveled from their homes all over Israel to Jerusalem for the major feasts. And there were three major feasts that happened each year. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And they would travel from all over Israel to Jerusalem. And the Songs of Ascents were a sort of hymn book for them. This is what they would sing together as they made their trek to Jerusalem and as they would trip home. And um, they were written to help God's people learn to pray their lives to God, um, to pray their lives as they traveled um, to Jerusalem. And Psalm 122 specifically is about desiring the kingdom. That's what I've titled the sermon tonight. And that's a... um, that's a title that's borrowed from a recent book by a Christian philosopher named, named Jamie Smith. And the claim of this book is that people, we people, um, are fundamentally shaped and driven in life by what we love. Our loves or our desires, the things that we find beautiful and the things that we, we long for, these loves shape our words and deeds even before our thoughts and beliefs do. As humans, we are fundamentally desiring creatures. We are lovers. This is what it means to be human. And, of course, we get this, right? Mary Clark, my wife, and I get this. Um, as we watch our children every day, we tell them what is right and wrong. We make them sit down for dinner or try to make them sit down for dinner and to say please and thank you. We try to get them to obey us, and they do for a short time. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they want to do. And that's because as humans, we are fundamentally lovers. At the end of the day, we're going to do what we want to do, what we love to do. And this is why one of the major ways the Bible talks about humans is it talks about the human heart. In Mark 12, Jesus is asked by a Bible expert, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answers him. He says, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second one is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. God desires for his people to love him and his kingdom above all else, to seek after it, to desire it, to want it. And this desire for God's kingdom is formed by worship. So as we look at this psalm, I want us to see these three things, that worship aims our love, it shapes our love, and it transforms our love. So first, worship aims our love. So what makes you happy? I want you all to think about this for a second. What makes you happy? What makes you glad? What are the things that if someone suggests doing them that you get excited? Things that you are willing to drop everything to do. This is where our psalm begins. Look at verse 1. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He has this this great excitement about entering Jerusalem to worship God. And the psalmist here says that I was glad. Or it can also mean that he was deeply joyful when his companions said to him, let's go. Let's go to the house of the Lord. 
In the very depths of his heart, he desired the kingdom of God. So on campus, when you walk into Reynolds Gym, I don't know if you all have seen this, there's this bulletin board on the left side. And on the bulletin board is a poster advertising the Wake Forest Archery Club. Is anybody in the Wake Forest Archery Club? Oh, come on. All right. So I've learned this. The Wake Forest Archery Club was founded in 2010. It is the largest collegiate archery club in the country. So I don't know very much about archery. Everything I know, I've learned from Disney's Robin Hood and from Hunger Games. So not a lot. But what I know about archery is that you need a bow and you need an arrow and you need a target and you need lots of practice. The goal of archery, as you know, um, is to hit the bullseye of the target. And so you practice over and over again, I assume. I mean, I've never done this, except when I was a kid at camp, right? But I assume, you know, you have to practice over and over again, aiming the bow and pulling it back and shooting the arrow, aiming at the target. You learn to account for uh, the speed and direction of the wind, and then these practices become habits. Um, And you develop these good habits of aiming your arrow at the target. So now I want you all to think of love as an arrow. Or if you're a physics major, you can think of love as a vector. It has both magnitude and direction. So love is an arrow. It's an arrow that you practice firing over and over again. And I want you to think of the target. Imagine you're an archer. Think of the target as the object of your love, the thing or the person that you love. Now I want you to hold this image in your head. Um, So you're an archer, your arrow is love, and the target is the object of your love. All right, hold that in your head. Um, Now I want you to imagine that you've never heard this psalm read. That's going to be hard. Um, And that you're somewhere else. Say you're in your dorm or you're in the library. Um, How do you think you would finish the first sentence of this psalm? I was glad when they said to me, let us go. Would it be, I was glad when they said to me, let us go shopping. Or I was glad when they said to me, let's go to Deke. Maybe not. Um, I was glad when they said to me, let's go out to eat. Or, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the beach. But some of you are more precise at aiming your loves than that, right? For some of you, if they said, let's go shopping, you'd ask, well, which store and who with? And if they said, let's go out to eat, you'd say, well, which which restaurant and with whom? And if they said, let's go to the beach, you'd say, well, which beach and who are we going with? And somehow, this is connected to your worship. To go back to the David Foster Wallace quote, if you're worshiping the perfect image then you will love the mall or certain stores in the mall above all else. If you're worshiping the experience of food, then you will love only the best restaurants with the best food. And if you're worshiping the life of comfort and ease, then you will love only the most exclusive beaches and the quality of life they represent. Right? right. And this, y'all, this is me too. So I want you to picture yourself as the archer again. You have a multitude of targets in front of you, and this time there's a crowd cheering for you. And the crowd gets louder and louder telling you to aim at a different target. And for the author of this psalm, his crowd is cheering, let us go to the house of the Lord. Aim your arrow at the kingdom of God. So first, worship aims our love. And second, worship shapes our loves. If you notice, he talks about Jerusalem a couple of times in this passage. So what is the significance of Jerusalem? Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, he writes this. He says, Jerusalem for the ancient Jew was the place for worship. Everyone went up at least three times a year, three times a year. And in Jerusalem, everything that God said was remembered and celebrated. When you went to Jerusalem, you encountered the great foundational realities of life. God created you. God redeemed you. God has provided for you. 
In Jerusalem, you saw in ritual and heard proclaimed the powerful truth that God forgives our sins and he makes it possible to live without guilt, impossible to live with purpose. In Jerusalem, all the scattered fragments of experience, all the bits and pieces of truth and feelings and perception were put together in a single whole. And we see this in verses 3 to 5. I want you all to see three things in this. First, in verse 3, the city itself was this kind of architectural metaphor for what worship is. All the pieces of the city fit firmly together. Then in verse 4, all of the people go up and worship. All the different tribes function together as a single people. Their hearts were tuned to a single chord, which was giving thanks to the Lord. And then in verse 5, their thanksgiving was aimed at the Lord who set their thrones of judgment. All right, so what does this mean for us? Excuse me. Um, Do you ever feel like you're confused and things in your life refuse to fit together? That you need to get away from all the hassle and you need to get your head together? Um, Like right now, is your mind being bombarded with your to-do list, that paper you need to finish, the reading you need to get done tonight? One pastor explains this feeling this way. He's telling a story of going to visit a woman in her home, and when he arrives, he sees her sitting at a window um, embroidering a a piece of cloth on an oval hoop. And she says to the pastor, Pastor, while waiting for you to come, I realize what's wrong with me. I don't have a frame. My feelings, my thoughts, my activities, everything is loose and sloppy. There's no border to my life. I never know where I am. I need a frame for my life like this one I have for my embroidery. So how do we get that framework, that sense of solid structure, so that we know where we stand or therefore, and are therefore able to do our work easily and without anxiety? Well, Christians go to worship. We go to church. Week by week, we enter the place that is bound firmly together, the place where the tribes go up, the place where we give thanks to the Lord, a place that claims for itself that it is designed to order our lives. It's where we get a working definition of life. And RUF is not the church. Um, RUF is an arm of the church. And yet, even the way we worship here together has the power to shape our loves. Right? And there's lots and lots of people and places in our lives that are after your love. Lots of places that, cl- that claim to have the power to shape you and the power to hold you together. Think of the brands that you wear and the stories they tell you. I don't know if you all have noticed this, but brands have gotten incredibly good at telling their story. Um, every brand now has a website that you, and has a, a video on the website that tells the story of, of the brand so that if you buy their product, they're giving you something more than just that piece of clothing or that watch or that pair of shoes. And think of the organizations that you're a part of. Think of the promises that they make to you. And again, remember the words of David Foster Wallace. If it's, if it's money and things that you worship... If you let that shape you, then you will never have enough and never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, if you let that shape you, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, if you let that shape you, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. If you let that shape you, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Y'all, worship shapes our loves, whether we want it to or not. And there's this odd phrase in verse 5 
uh, it says the thrones of judgment were set in the house of David. What it's saying is that God has shaped all of creation to find its structure in and through the one who sits on the throne of David. And the one who sits on the throne of David is Jesus Christ. And it's as we worship him, as we worship Jesus, that our loves will be shaped towards his kingdom. The reason that churches use liturgy, the reason they read scripture together, that they pray written prayers together, the reason they sing songs together, the reason they eat the Lord's Supper together, the reason that we do this each week at church is because of the power that it has to shape us into people who desire the kingdom of God. And so for you, if y'all aren't connected to a church here in Winston, um, we would love to help you get connected. Um, we'll send something out in the email that has a link so we can, we can help you get connected to a local church. If this is something that you want, if you want your love to be shaped in this way. And rather than being shaped into feeling like you've never had enough, or shaped into feeling ugly, or shaped into feeling weak or afraid, or shaped into feeling stupid... A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Rather than being shaped into these things, worshiping Jesus, aiming our love at the kingdom of God, shapes our loves towards how they were designed to be. Knowing the love of God in response, loving God and loving our neighbors. So worship aims our love, worship shapes our love, and finally worship transforms our love. Look at verses 6 through 8. Um, The psalm ends with the author calling others to pray for Jerusalem. You know, it started with him being invited to go to Jerusalem, and it ends with him inviting others to pray with him for Jerusalem and to pray specifically for peace. If you look at verse 9, at the very end, it closes with this promise that he is going to seek the good of Jerusalem, to seek the kingdom of God for God's sake. So how does worship transform our loves? Well, as I said at the beginning, the songs of ascents were prayed by the ancient Jews, prayed by the Hebrews, as they made their trek from their homes to Jerusalem at least three times a year. Every year they did this. And as they went up to Jerusalem singing this song, they prayed that God would change their hearts to desire his kingdom, that he would do the work of transformation, of making his people into a people who loved him and loved their neighbors. So simply put, Worship transforms our loves by aiming them at the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. I want to end my talk tonight um, the same way that this psalm ends, focusing on peace. Um, Peace is this, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. You all have probably heard that word. Um, And this is one of the richest words in the Bible. And it's hard to define because it is such a vast, rich, beautiful word. It holds in itself the full picture of everything being made right, the binding of every broken heart, the proclamation of freedom from all slavery, comfort for all who mourn. Y'all, this is shalom. This is peace. This is what we all long for, right? Think of the things that you worship that aren't Jesus. Think of the places you go to form your loves, money or image or beauty or intellect or power. Why do you go there? It's because you're searching for peace, right? You're longing for that one thing that if you give yourself to it, you will experience true and lasting peace. And and here's the thing. On your own, you cannot extricate yourself from the aiming, shaping, and transforming power of those things. 
This is how sin works in our hearts. The world grabs hold of our loves and it misaims it. It misshapes it. It deforms it and it enslaves it. And so we keep worshiping the same things that promise peace, but they end up eating us alive. And the problem that we face isn't a problem of money. It's not a problem of image or clothing or power or intellect. But the problem is with our hearts. But here is the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus, God gives us new hearts so that we can love him and sing honestly along with this psalm. Because Jesus, rather than getting to go into the house of the Lord... He was taken outside of the gates and forced to carry his own cross where he carried it up to a hill where he was hung. In Jerusalem, where the thrones of judgment were set, rather than judging Jesus rightly, they judged him condemned, an innocent man, and gave him the death of a criminal. And Jesus, the one who loved the peace of Jerusalem more than any other, the one who prayed for the peace of Jerusalem more than any other, Instead of peace, he was crushed by its violence. He did all of this. He was left outside. He was condemned as a criminal. And he was crushed by the violence of the the cross. He did all of this on the cross because he loves you. So that through faith in him, you might have your hearts aimed with gladness at his kingdom. So that in him you might have your, shape, your hearts shaped by his church. And so that in him you might know and participate in his peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this picture of worship and what it does to us. How it aims our loves. And we ask now that you would help us. Um, Lord, you know our hearts. And you know how we are aimed at everything. Um, Lord, would you, would you aim our love? Would you shape our love? Would you transform our love that we would be people who know your love for us, know it deeply, um, and that we would love you and love others in response? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.